Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16. The last time we started chapter 17 with the southern trek through the eastern coastal Grecian cities. And today we're going to finish up chapter 17 with Paul in Athens of southern Greece, starting with 16. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be pro proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. <clears throat> Verse six, I'm sorry, a little background here is Athens was located, it's still located, in southern Greece. It was known as Achaia back then. It was named after the Greek uh, false goddess Athena. She was the goddess of wisdom, among it, many other things now come into play. Athens was the birthplace of Socrates and Pericles, for those of you who are cultured, and it was also the home of philosophers Epicurus, Zenos, and Plato and Aristotle's work. So there's your background. Verse 16, it says, His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols or false gods. The Greek word for provoked comes out as a precursor to our English word, if you've heard of it, paroxysm. And that word literally means to be stirred or to have a, a sudden outburst of emotion, paroxysm. Now, I've read testimonies of preachers who have sobbed and been overcome with emotion when they really ponder what the Bible says about hell and the wide road that leads to destruction. As a matter of fact, I think it was uh, D.L. Moody, please yell out and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know I went over this, but I can't remember going back in my notes who it was. But there was one preacher who made it a, um, a, a pattern that he wouldn't go to bed each night until he went outside and met one new person and shared Jesus Christ with him. Come on, who knows? Was it Moody? Oh, you guys, sh shaking your head yes? Nobody wants to feel really brave? Okay, good, Moody. Got it right. Compassion for the lost. Do we have it? And if we do, what are we doing about it? Well, we see Paul did something about it. The, bo the book of James tells us that as Christians, we're not only to be hearers of the word, but the word is supposed to do something in us, and we're supposed to bear fruit. And after we become hearers of the word, we also become doers of the word. Okay? It's not only your words, but it's your actions. I'll give you a story. Um, Walter and, and Al went to Guatemala last week, and uh, they just went on a missions trip, and it was Walter, the brother in a fellowship, it was his first time. And we had some discussions prior to him going down there. And he said to me, Pastor Joe, I have a thriving business, and I'm the only one who can really take care of it. He goes, I don't know what will happen if I leave to go for seven or so days, and nobody's running the business. And then he came back to me, and he said, you know, I feel the Lord's laying it on my heart. The Lord's saying to me, I gave you that business. I gave you the ability to, to provide for your family and live the life that you live. Now take a step of faith. And this brother, he just did that. He just closed up shop, went to Guatemala on a missions trip, came back, and everything was fine. Now, that's an incredible step of faith for that brother. 
And here's a, that's an example of somebody who's a doer of the, world, the word. His first missions trip, and he had a great time. A lot of fruit came out of that uh, trip. But we can all do something. We can all make a, a difference in some small way for the lost, for the Lord. And verse 17, it said that Paul goes to the synagogue to reach the devout. But Paul also goes to the marketplace or the agora to reach the heathen there. Whatever it took. Remember, he said, all things to all men. I'll become all things to all men that I may win some to the cause of Christ. Uh, K.P. Yohannan, who's been here before, he's the, uh, pretty much the founder of Gospel for Asia in India. As an Indian native, he said that, he said, my vision was to get the missionaries when they come to India, not to live above the villagers, but to live among them. You know, the villagers, the natives of India know that the Americans come and they stay in their air-conditioned place and they eat steak at night and they, you know, they do all these things and then they come and hang out with us and then they go back to their, their places. But KP's vision was to get people trained up in that area, natives of that area, to, to mingle among them and be a part of them and integrate with them. So it was just really a, a neat idea that he had and it works very well. Verse 18, we see now Paul comes in contact with two groups of people, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, this is important, actually, for the meat of the story. The Epicureans, they followed a man named Epicurus in the 3rd century B.C., and he taught the pursuit of pleasure and the gratification of appetites. Welcome to New Jersey, right? Not that being comfortable is wrong, but I would say this. If your whole life is to pursue the gratification of your flesh, which has no eternal consequences, you're a very shallow person. And I don't mind saying that. And that's what these people taught. Day in, day out, waking hours, going to bed, it's all about gratification of my flesh. And we know that when we die, the flesh is dead. The only thing that lives forever is the spirit. So that's kind of foolish philosophy. The Epicureans were largely atheists and probably were equivalent to our hedonists or our materialists of today. Second group of people were the Stoics. The Stoics followed the philosopher Zeno about the same time, and the reason why they were called Stoics was because the leaders taught from what was called a stoa, or a porch, and this is where they did their dissertations, hence the word Stoic. Now, what they taught was God is not personal, but he's in everything, sort of a pantheism. Uh, God was the great spirit of the universe. He was in everything around us. Now, they emphasized personal discipline, self-control, and self-sufficiency. Man was not to be moved by joy or grief, and he was to be indifferent to his passions and emotions. Kind of sounds a little boring there. Uh, the first two leader of the Stoics incidentally committed suicide. This a historical fact. Um, anyway, man's philosophy has always been repackaged. Now, we're talking about things that came around more than 2,300 years ago, and you still see them repackaged and resurfaced today. Uh, Modern-day pantheists, maybe Zen Buddhists have a little bit of that in there. And our English word stoic, actually, in our language, uh, means non-emotive, to have no emotion. The Epicureans said, enjoy life without limit. And the Stoics said, endure life. So it was kind of a two extremes that now Paul had to work within these two philosophies as he's talking to these people. <clears throat> Verse 18. Some of them said to him, hey, what does this babbler have to say? Now the word babbler, when you translate it from the Greek, literally means 
in its literal sense, it means what does this seed picker have to say? This was an insult. It was similar to our, you know, you're grabbing at straws. You're having a discussion with somebody. You don't like where they're going. And you say, hey, man, you're grabbing at straws. You don't know what you're talking about. So they called him a seed picker. Picking seeds of different philosophies to put together to find something useful to say. And I could see them, these philosophers, you know, with the typical philosophical stance. So, Paul, what are you, what are you saying here? Are you saying this God-man that you're talking about? Well, in our, our philosophy, which um, we, we pride ourselves on, we have those hybrids too. Part God, part man, the hybrids, yeah. What else is it, Paul, that you're trying to say? Oh, miracles? Yes, yes. In our philosophy, we have the, the mythology and we have the miracles too. What else is it, Paul, that you want to say here? Oh, the resurrection? They kind of got hung up on this. Uh, resurrection, do we have that? Um, I don't know, the phoenix kind of rose? No, that's not it. You know what? You're, you're being eclectic, Paul. You know, you're, you're picking for seeds. Where they just weren't, some of these people just were not buying it. They were so pompous about their intellect and their culture that they didn't see the futility of their positions. Hmm. They were so proud, but they were so spiritually blinded. <clears throat> Likewise, we live in an age today. What is today known as? The age of information, right? We have so much information at our fingertips. Whatever it is we need to find out, we just type it into our computer and we get it. As much knowledge as we would like, we can fill our minds and our heads with, can't we? But we also live in an age where society has become humanistic. Our society believes, or you know, all the, all the reports are out there. Um, even if people are converted to some type of faith, there's so many cults that are rising up. Those who are really finding true faith, the numbers are very small, and the population is growing very large. We live in an age where people believe that man will solve his own problems. But all the while, look around you. The global problems are just getting worse. And I characterize them in the three C's, crime, conflict, and climate. And they're just getting out of control. But we're humanists. We believe that man's going to solve his own problems given enough time and intelligence. This foolish idea of man is going to open the door to the Antichrist to come. Because you've you got to look at how the stage is set. <clears throat> Whether it's, look at the political spectrum, whether it's liberal or conservative. Okay, Obama, I give him credit for the, the, the whole thing with the message of change. You go all the way through the political spectrum to Newt Gingrich, who wrote a book recently called The Power of Change. The buzzword in the political scene is change. Help us, leaders. We, we need you. We need you to do something different. Help revitalize this country and this world. Help us to find change. But people aren't looking to God. They're looking to man, Right? And the Antichrist is going to come, and you may see some of these political speakers, and they're smooth. Their words are like butter. But every once in a while, there's a gaffe, and they have to apologize for something they say. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to be very articulate, very charismatic, but he's going to be inspired by the dragon. Satan is the one who's going to be pulling his strings, and Satan is the father of lies. So this person, you're not going to catch him in any gaffe. As he speaks, people are going to be swooned by him. His words are going to be sweet like honey and smooth like butter. And this is what the world is setting itself up for. You want it? The Lord's like, you want it? Here's your man of sin. He's all yours. Have Adam. He's going to start and make a false peace, especially it's going to start in the Middle East, and then he's going to start causing problems and the wars are going to break out and he's going to attack Israel. So that's what's going to happen in the world. It's not a pretty picture, but the Bible says those who are in Christ, if we truly are in Christ, we'll be out of here before that. I believe that's clear from the scriptures. And there's a, you know, when we go into that, I'll, I'll give you all the, uh, the proof text well, like I've done before. 
But we can explore man's recycled foolish wisdom. Because if you're here and you're saying, you know, this is new to me, it's a church, you know, I've never really seen people open up to the Bible, I'm going to give you the difference between man's foolish wisdom and God's wisdom. And you see that you can't compare the two. And man's foolish wisdom, again, has been continually recycled. You look at the Epicureans 2,300 years ago. Hedonist materialists, we have them today, don't we? You look at the, um, the Stoics, you can find a lot of that in New Age uh, philosophy, God is in everything. Shirley MacLaine screaming, I am God, I am God, like that's going to do anything for her. Um, you know, even the, the Jehovah Witnesses' fear of the Trinity, that's a recycled 4th century Arianism. That didn't start with Jehovah Witnesses in the 1800. That started in the 4th century. You look at the Mormonism. Uh, godhood progression. Ask any Mormon, what, do you, what can you hope for after this life? Well, that I could be a God and have my own planet, my own universe, and create my own people. I'm, I'm extended and I progress to a Godhood. Well, that goes back several thousand years in the Garden of Eden, where Satan said to Eve, you know, you could disobey God. He's not going to kill you. He knows that the, the moment you eat of that fruit, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be just like him. You'll be a God, just like God. And Eve's like, hey, that's not a bad gig. Let me take a bite. And then we know what happened after that. So we see man's recycled wisdom is foolishness. And going back to the Athenians, they looked at Paul, and people look at us today as seed pickers. But we follow God's wisdom. Satan's works and man's works will always counterfeit God's original design, and it will always work to our detriment. Verse 19 and 20. We see that... They took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Now, the Areopagus was the judicial and legislative seat of government. It was the high court, so to speak. And you can see how the Greeks had a big head about their culture. How many people have been to Greece? Raise your hand. Anyone been to Greece? Isn't it beautiful? I mean, I've just seen pictures of it, especially this area with the... With the um, even the pagan sites, I mean, the, the works of architecture are gorgeous. The hills and the, the Acropolis and the, uh, all these, these different things, these structures that they have. And back then, they were, they were the, uh, on the cutting edge of their modern technology. So they, they had a lot, from their perspective, to be proud of or to, to have pride uh, regarding. But this was also the Rocky Hill, which was also known as Mars Hill or Ares Hill, depending on which god you were worshiping northwest of the Acropolis in Athens, just to give you a little geography. And they ask him, they say, Paul, may we know what this new doctrine is? Now, it doesn't get better than that. Some of us look for an end to maybe talk to somebody, a relative, somebody you love about the Lord and how, you know, how, that you want them to be saved and go to heaven and all that kind of stuff, and you just can't find an end. Right here, this is probably the best end that you can get. May we know what this new doctrine is that you're speaking of? And man, sometimes we get caught by surprise when somebody asks us to share our faith, don't we? I remember um, there was a young girl that we took in years ago, young Iranian girl uh, from Iran, long story. She got involved with some people here in the States. She was on a visa, and she got into some, not legal trouble, but trouble in their culture. And they were going to fly her back to Iran, and she believed that nobody would see her again. You've heard of honor killing. Sometimes that happens in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, we, we kept her uh, for a while, kept her safe. 
And I remember one time, um, a few months later, her mother called our house and was talking to my wife and said, you know, my daughter makes me so angry. How do you, you're a stranger. How do you love my daughter more than I can love my daughter? Man, you talk about bing, 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 green light. Let me tell you about my Jesus. So it was pretty awesome. And the mother, the mother said, you keep taking her to church. We ended up taking her when we went to Calvary Chapel Overage. We would take her to church. So it was pretty cool. Tell me about your Jesus. Man, there's your open door there. 1 Peter 3.15 says that that's why you're here today. You're here today to be built up in the Word of God. So when the time is right, through your words or your deeds, people want to know what is it about you? Why are you different? Tell me about your faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense or a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's your crux right there. Okay, verse 21. This is sort of an aside. Uh, Luke says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who who were there spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. This is how they spent their time. With the great age of the uh, great Greek philosophers gone, the Athenians were trying to relive the glory days of the Grecian domination. All they did was, you know, it was philosophizing all day long and living in the past. And it's really sad. These people lived in the past. And that's all they did with their lives. They lived in the past. Living in the past. Sometimes we can do that, can't we? You know, I'm losing my youth. Uh, I'm losing my looks, my physical abilities, or whatever it is. Um, Maybe past hurts or bad experiences can lead us to carry emotional baggage, living in the past. Do we realize that sometimes when we live in the past, and we see the folly of what the Athenians do, when we live in the past, we can actually hurt people because we get in a mindset where we hold on to these hurts and we put up walls. And then when we meet new people, we, we... We interject and and project our past hurts onto them, not fully really living in Christ, not fully becoming that new creature in Christ, but continuing to hold on to those walls. Well, the Bible asks us, are we to be building walls and keeping people out, or are we to be laying foundations? Because the Bible calls us to lay those foundations. If we choose to be new creatures in Christ, we should walk in that uh, new nature, not in the old nature, because the Bible says that when we become baptized, we, we tell the world, hey, I'm going into that water. It's going to signify me going into my old life, leaving it behind, burying it, and be resurrected into newness of life. Let's not carry the past around with us. It certainly worked to the detriment of the Athenians here. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I will proclaim to you. See, this was Paul's tie-in, the unknown God. This was his in, so to speak. Paul used the Athenians' desire not to want to offend any gods that they may have forgotten as a bridge or a starting point. Ironically, the one that they forgot the altar to the unknown God that they didn't know, and any of them, was the only one that actually really existed. There were uh, traveling traveling, uh, historians that would go through Athens and say, you can find more gods in Athens than you can find men. And they just had so many altars and so many gods, they were like multiple polytheists worshiping all these different gods. And Paul's saying to them, you worship this unknown God in your ignorance, now let me shed some light on the subject. 
verse 24. He says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul starts to explain and helps them to understand the, the true God by a progression of steps. And this is good. It's good for us to read. Verse 24 and 25, Paul starts up with the first step. Hey, guys, let me explain the grandeur of God. Okay, I see you, you're, you, you perceive, I perceive that you guys are religious. You've got your temples, your shrines, your statues. You're religious people. Now let me really expand your mind. Let me expand your horizon on what this true God that none of you really know, but he's, he blows away all these other gods. Let me explain to you the grandeur of this God. He's bigger and better than anything you guys could ever imagine. Furthermore, his magnific magnificence cannot be contained in dwellings made with hands. Now, with David and Solomon, remember David said to the Lord, I want to build a house for you. And the Lord said, well, your son is going to, but, you know, let me build a house for you, David, because it's really all about God. It's really not all about us. And that's how grand God is. And even Solomon, when he built the home or the temple and he dedicated it, he said in it that nobody could, this, this temple can't even, no matter how magnificent this temple is, and it was, it, it, it itself can't even contain God because he's so amazing. A little part of God, a, a part of his glory would reside in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, physical presence, but he was also everywhere at the same time. I don't know how he does it, but it's because he's God. The Shekinah glory, his physical presence, literally dwelled in that small portion of temple, but he also was everywhere else around the world, or around the universe, or around his whole creation. So basically he's saying to them, trust me, God doesn't need you to do anything for him. It's all about what he's done for us. And that's what we learn when we come to church. What we learn is, is so many say, well, I'm going to do this for God, I'm going to do that for God, but it's really about what God has done for us. See, we have it backwards. We want to work towards pleasing God. But really how it works is that what God did for us first, the magnitude of that, sending his only son into the world to die for our sins so that we would have eternal life, once we get the, the understanding of what he did there, then we want, to, we want to just, from our heart, we want to do good deeds. Not because we're forced to, but because we're joyful about doing it. You see, it goes in that direction. The second thing is, First is God's a big God. 
The second thing is, paradoxically, as grand as God is, he has made himself very close to us. So God's real big. Yeah, you got that point. Now, as big as he is, believe it or not, he's really close to us. Isn't that amazing? And he said, from one blood, every nation, every nation was made from one blood, shows that we're all brothers and sisters. Now, the reason why he brings that up is because the Greeks at the time had a superiority complex about their race. They felt that, you know, as many races do, they looked at themselves and said, hey, we're Greeks, we're great. We got culture, education, look at the Parthenon, we're great. And Paul's like saying, listen, we're all from the same cloth. We're cut from the same cloth. We're all from the same blood. As a matter of fact, over the years, many have bought into the superior race doctrine, which has been the impetus to all kinds of atrocities, mankind against mankind. And, you know, even it happens in religion. You know, we're great. It's, it's about our race. It's about what we believe. Okay, it's really not. It's about the Bible. And I try to, when people say, well, you guys believe. Do you guys think you have it right? It's not about what we believe. It's about us following the Bible. The church next door and the church down the street, if they're all using the same Bible and they're all preaching from the Bible, we're all brothers and sisters. We all believe the same thing. Okay? But it's funny how people can, groups can look at themselves nationalistically and pridefully and exclude other groups. I almost liken it as if God was to be looking down at his children. Um, when people do that, it must look like kids saying, Daddy loves me more than he loves you. No, he doesn't. Daddy loves me more, more than he loves you. I mean, it's just so childish for people to behave that way. And the last thing, verses 28 through 30, is now that you know all this, because God is a knowable God, and that, a lot of that is knowable, is revealed in the resurrection, God's not going to overlook ignorance anymore. And I'm going to come back to that. In verse 28, Paul quotes two poets. You think that this is Paul's own words, but actually there were two poets that he quotes. He says, the first quote is um, from the poet Epimenides. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. So he's directly quoting from the Greek poet Epimenides. The second poet he's uh, quoting from is the poet Aridus, where at the bottom he says, for we are also his offspring. See, Paul's a master. He took whatever was available. He took it and he used it to his advantage to build a bridge to these people. You know, hey, this, this guy Epimenides, yeah, you guys are familiar with him, right? Yeah, yeah, we know Epimenides. He's pretty cool. Well, he said this, and oh, yeah, Aridus. Yeah, you guys know Aridus. Oh, yeah, we know Aridus. Well, he said that we're God's offspring. So what, what Paul does is he takes that and he runs with it, right? He says, yeah, not only are we his offspring, but we were made from one blood. That's how close we are. It's not about Greeks and Romans and, and Jews. And it's about we're all of one blood to make one nation. And verse 29, we see a progression of thought here. Paul says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So here's a progression of thought. He's saying... Okay, if we're highly specialized as humans, okay, we, we have our frames, our, our, the way our bodies are made, our emotions, our thoughts, and God made us, okay, there's a logic here, then if God made us as amazing as we are, he must be even more amazing, right? He's even greater. Then how could we worship God in the form of items such as wood, stone, and metal that are even of less value than ourselves? And furthermore, how could we use those beggarly items of wood, stone, and um, metal, and build God a house. You can't contain him in those beggarly items of, of ore that we pull out of the ground. It doesn't make any sense. And basically, the one who worships a statue or an idol 
or an image or a relic is not only in violation to God's second commandment, not to make graven images and bow down to it, but also doesn't know God for who he is. When you find people like that, what you need to do is love them enough to explain to them, like Paul did, how great God is. And then when they go back to worshiping their idols, and you really explain to them the magnitude of God and, and how incredible he is, then they look at that, those idols and statues and stuff and say, you know, it starts to put seeds of doubt in their hearts because you're, you're, you're exemplifying how, how magnificent God is because you know the Bible. Now, back to saying what he said about um, he's going to allow, or the, the ignorance in worship, he's not going to allow it anymore. Basically, what he's saying is God will only put up with it for so long before he judges it. God will show grace for ignorance for so long, and then the grace is going to run out. And I think what Paul is trying to make a tie-in here is since the resurrection occurred, God is going to hold mankind more accountable for what he believes is about salvation. In other words, and I'll just present the gospel very simply for those of you who may not have heard it before. We rebelled against God. God made us in his image, but he also made us with choice. We chose to walk away from God. We're in rebellion. We're in sin against God. God is perfect. But God wants his children, us, to be reconciled back to him. And here's that, that's the big problem that he has. So how does he judge sin? Because sin is filthy and loathsome to God who's perfect, but also to, to draw us close to him when we're steeped in sin. And the plan was to bring Jesus Christ, his only son, born of a virgin, um, lived a sinless life, a perfect life, did miracles, to come into the world and die for our sins. When he shed his blood, it was for the remission of our sins. And the seal of that authenticity was the resurrection. When Jesus died and rose again, we can have everlasting life. Okay? So that was God's plan. That's the gospel. Now, I'm sure, no doubt in my mind, that Paul gave them the gospel and he laid it on them heavy. And I think he's basically saying to them, don't think you can just discard it and be fine. As a matter of fact, in verse 31, he talks about judgment. This is because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Now, I'm going to turn your attention to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, starting with verse 11. I want to read a few verses. Revelation 20, 11. There's different types of judgments in the scripture. Uh, if you look at the word judge or judgment in the dictionary, there's probably about 60 different meanings. It could mean anywhere from deciding on a, if a piece of art is, is artful enough versus damnation to hell. So the word judge has a, a wide variety of meaning. We have to look at the context of what we're talking about. Christians will stand before God in judgment. But our judgment, when we're in Christ and we've passed from life to death, uh, from eternal death to eternal life, when we stand before God, we're judged basically as sort of like the Olympics. You know, we, hey, you know, this is, you went out and you were a missionary, you went out and you were a pastor, you went out and you uh, helped the poor, and, and there's a judgment, a good judgment, again, like the Olympics. Here's the judgment that I want to read is the great white throne judgment. These are the people who are in rebellion against God. These are the people who reject God's message of salvation. And I'm just going to read a few verses to you. And this is, Try to, as I'm reading it, try to get a picture in your mind of the scene. This is pretty wild. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now I get a picture of somehow where or these people are standing before God, and you know, as soon as he comes on the scene, his mere presence, his face, everything in creation just 
just goes. It just disappears. That's, ama- that's the amount of power that God has. It's just the created thing. It's gone. And they're in like nothingness. Um, and I saw the dead, small and great, from the lowest of the low to the most uh, notoriety, no, no, most important person that we look at in, in the world, the most wealthy, the most whatever. And I said, saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. That must be pretty scary. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Wow, imagine that big book that comes out, that big, he just lays it down and, you know, your name is either in the book of life or it's not in the book of life. Then the sea gave up the dead who were in it. You know how many people have died at sea? All the wars that have been fought since mankind, since ancient times, how many bodies are in the sea? Uh, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. See, we think that people think, well, death is the final place. I'm just going to die and cease to exist. Well, that's not true. And even the, when we talk about Hades, the bad people go to this temporary holding cell. We talked about that when we covered Luke, the temporary holding cell for the dead, for, the, for those who are not in Christ. And death and Hades are going to be given up, as well as those from the sea. Death is going to be, all this stuff's going to be given up, and then we're going to see what happens to it. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So Paul is talking about this appointed day or this appointed time where, where, the, where those who rebelled against God, those who rejected Christ, you know, the, everything is going to give them up and they're not going to have any place to flee. And God is going to judge them and then he's going to send them to the lake of fire. So that's it, the burning lake of fire. That's, that's where you burn forever and ever. You're conscious and um, it never ends. But nobody has to go there. That's the good news. There's bad news, but the good news, is, the good news is nobody has to go there. Okay. So, if you claim ignorance, if this is on the um, CD or this is on the website, uh, or you're here today and you say, well, that's an interesting story, but I'm going to go just live my life. I don't really care about the whole Jesus thing right now and you let time go by, and 20, 30 years goes by, and you find out that you die, and you stand before the Lord, and you say, Lord, have mercy on me, I didn't know. He will bring up this time and say, you did know. You heard it, and you have no excuse. So, verse 32, Acts, back to Acts 17, verse 32. There's three types of responses to receiving the gospel. Three, three types of responses. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So you have three responses. One is the most favorable response in verse 34. This is something that your soul needs. This is something that your soul has been craving since the moment that you were, that you were born, you were created. Your soul is craving the gospel. There's always going to be an emptiness in your heart that you're always going to try to put other things in, uh, money, cars, you know, relationships, and it's just not going to fill that hole. The only thing that's going to fill that hole is that relationship with God through his son, uh, Jesus Christ. So that's the best response. Then the two other common responses are this. Some mock, some mocked him. And you may share the gospel, and the maybe more intellectuals may say, how ridiculous I can't believe you still believe that silly fairy tale 2,000 years ago. So you may be mocked. It's happened to you, I'm sure. And the other one is, we'll hear you again on this matter. Some will procrastinate. They know it's, 
there was times when I was witness to, and I felt, I felt I was getting hot under the collar because I knew what was being said was right, but I just wasn't ready. I had my life. You know, God thing was going to interfere with my life, so I, I like the Rodney Dangerfield, I started doing this, you know. And I was like, right, listen, I've got to get out of here. I've got somewhere to go. I'll hear you again on this matter. And this is what they did. We'll hear you again on this matter. Procrastinators. Well, the good thing is that some procrastinators like me eventually come to their senses and say, hey, why, why am I still running? Let me, just do, let me just receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So, okay, the first verse that we read was uh, Paul's spirit was provoked because the city was given over to idols. That's pretty sad. The Greeks had knowledge. They had education. They had culture. They had pleasure. They had modern technology but they were still eternally lost. Would, the spirit, would Paul's spirit be provoked if God was to bring him back and let him hang out in New Jersey for a while? Would he still have the same provoking in his spirit when he would look around at our culture and see what we do? I wonder. Sure, we don't worship um, Zeus. Anybody here worship Zeus, Hera, or Athena? No, that's pretty silly. But in our society, we just, again, man's, man's wisdom is just repackaged. We just repackage it. Let me give you some of the three gods that we worship in our society. The first god is the god of education or the god of intelligence. Yes, those of us, especially in the Princeton area, we're smart, aren't we? We pride ourselves on our intellect. In our society, if you don't have some type of degree, somebody else will look down on you. That's just the society we live in. Now, I have a four-year degree from Rutgers, but it didn't make me a better person. What made me a better person was when I repented of my sins and started to follow Jesus, not that piece of paper that I have at home. Um, if you worship the God of education or intellect long enough, he will convince you that you're better, you're better than other people. Because then what you get to do is, if you're at the checkout line in the stop and shop and there's a girl bagging your groceries, you're better than her because you're educated, right? You're intelligent, and she's not. So you could walk past her on your cell phone and ignore her like she doesn't exist and she asks you a question, and you just wave her along. You just put it in the bag, put it in the bag. Or the kid with the turban who's pumping your gas you know, he's, he's not as good as you either because you're intellectual, and he's pumping gas. So you open your window long enough to throw him the $20 bill, and you're on your way. Or you know everybody in your office except for the janitors because they don't speak English, and they have a low education. So basically what you do is you look down on them, and you can walk past Bill and Bob and everybody in the office, but you pay, look past the janitors, and you look, look, look past them like they don't exist because they're lower than you. You see, this is what happens when you worship education and intellect. You become better than everybody else. And then when that God is done using you, the next God you go to is success. Now he has his way with you because what he says is you already have the piece of paper. You already have the smart. Now make your mark, make your millions, make your money, put your name in lights, let everybody know that you exist, get your 15 minutes of fame. And then what he does is he takes you away from your family. You work seven days a week. You don't see your spouse. You don't see your kids. And it's like the cats in the cradle. When they become teenagers and they're going to college, of course you can send them to a good school and send the cycle all over again, but you don't know them. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to pray them back into the kingdom because you don't know what happened to their relationship with Jesus Christ. When I was a young husband, I said to my wife, you didn't marry a surgeon, you married a police officer. What can happen is we can get everything that the neighbors have and get all the things done in the house, but you'll never see me because I'll work, 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 and Josiah will grow up without a father. And she said, no, I want my husband at home. So you know what? Whatever happened within, about living within our meanings? You know? What about what happens with Christians, with us living within our means? It, it kind of goes away. It's either the husband who's a workaholic 
and has to amass that fortune, or the wife who wants everything and sends her husband out to work, or a combination of both. The third god is the last god. He's the god of leisure or recreation. And basically what this god says is he invites you and says, hey, you got the smarts, you got the piece of paper, you got the success, you got the money. Now it's your turn to relax because you deserve it. It's all about you. And then you say, yeah, I guess it is all about me. My whole life has been about me. And now it's time for me to be a big play baby for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, my elders are shaking their heads saying, you know, we finally just got more people in the church and he's scaring them away again. But it's really sad. I see some of these commercials for retirement uh, villages, and um, one of them is called the Villages, and you see eight people's in their 80s and their 90s, and all they do is play. They're golfing, they're swimming, they're racquetball, they're doing everything. And it's all about playing the rest of your life. Spend the last few years of your life just playing, right? That's pretty sad. Because at 80 and 90, I'm going to be a lot closer to seeing God than I am now if I make it that long. <laughs> but the point is, what a shame to waste the last few years of your life just playing. And is that all our life is about? Getting a piece of paper, okay, um, being successful, and then playing. Where did our life go? And where is the relationship with Jesus Christ? And are we really even going to recognize him when he see him? Well, gee, um, let's see, in a month there's about 700 hours if you divide up the average month. And uh, maybe I could go to church one or two Sundays out of the month. Maybe on the way to the club, I could listen to Charles Stanley or Lloyd Pulley and get my Bible time in. And maybe when my kids go to sleep, I'll say, quick, now I lay me down to sleep prayer with them and get my prayer time in with my kid. That's not acceptable. That's pathetic. It's really pathetic. You know, I look at their society and I look at our society. And in the beginning of this sermon, we looked at them like they were the idiots. But who's really idiots? In our society, can we say that we're any better than the Athenians? And we're supposed to know God. So, <laughs> so my prayer is that nobody stones me uh, at the end of the service. <laughs> my prayer is that we would trade in our false gods and we would look at our own hearts and say, and let me tell you something, I'm not, I say we because I'm included in this too. You compare me to any of these missionaries and I probably look like a self-centered materialistic pig. You know, so we all need to look at our hearts and look at the story and see what we can learn in the Bible about how we can change our lives and devote ourselves to God. Let's pray.